Welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I'm James Kreppi, and here's Aaron Fentress, and we'll be getting into all things from this past weekend where, uh, gosh, Aaron, what happened this past weekend? There was, uh, there was this <laughs> game between, oh, that's right, yes, the, uh, the rivalry without a name, Oregon and Oregon State. We'll get into uh, all things there, as well as, obviously, the rematch in the Pac-12 championship game between the Ducks and Utah, which is the uh, setup that we have here with Oregon beating Oregon State uh, rather handily. Uh, the final score really not a total reflection of uh, how convincing and how lopsided the game was at times. How Your takeaways from this past weekend in particular, Aaron? You know, I feel like Oregon was rocky and rocky three, went and played Clubber Lang at Utah and just got pummeled, and then they regrouped during the week, worked out with Apollo, came back, had a good, <laughs> better game against Oregon State, and now they're going to be even better against Utah. I think the Utah, I, I mean, I, I kind of felt like they had a really good chance to lose that game. I didn't think they'd get blown out like that. But I do think Oregon's better. I think they showed a lot by rebounding from that that disappointing loss, which cost them a playoff uh, berth as well. And I do think they're a better team. And at a neutral site, they're going to get it done this week against uh, Utah. Wow. So so you're, you're, a, <laughs> you're, you're totally... You, you've you've gone and and now you're you're up 100% bought in after much skepticism along the way over the course of the season. Now uh, all it took was a win over a seven and five team to uh, convince you that uh, they well, I, what, what, I what occurred that they, what occurred a mere 13 a days second. prior oh, to the oh, Pac-12 oh, championship oh. game was an anomaly uh, at the line of scrimmage, and Oregon is going to completely reverse it. Well. I had reservations that they could go 12 and 0 or 11 and 1 and get into the playoffs and, and they didn't. They, they, and they lost, you know, a road game against a d- good team caught up to them. But I do think this is a, a different setting. A, a sh- they shift, they're going to shift from that debacle. They show that they can stop 21 per, or 12 personnel, which you've been griping about all season, at least on Did that they day. Know? Did um, they? They didn't. They did didn't. They? Come on, hell, the eighty-something yards rushing. They did a good. No. Okay. Anyway, we'll get we'll get not more out of that. twelve and twenty-two. Not out of twelve and twenty-two. They didn't run any twelve and twenty-two. No, I'm saying they, the stopping happened out of eleven. Only eleven. Largely, largely. largely. I've got okay. it written down here, but yeah, a okay. lot of you know, Oregon State basically abandoned its identity, which that's for a different podcast. But okay. Either way, I do think. Oregon, Oregon will rebound from that loss at Utah and win Friday in Vegas. But we, we can get more into that later. I'm not buying into them being a national championship contender. I'm not buying into them being a great team, but I do think they can beat Utah. It's not like Utah's great. Well, national championship contender at this point, they're number, well, they were number 10. Um, so, or, you know, in the polls, they were number 11 last week in the CFP. We'll find out tonight exactly how they move up, whether it be to 10 or 9. But no, they're not, obviously not making the playoff. Though, actually, had Alabama lost the Iron Bowl last week, there would have been like a unbelievably narrow, like 1% total chaos scenario whereby they could have actually potentially climbed all the way back up. Uh, to four, uh, but think so? again, mo- it it would have required a, a whole scale of lunacy. That it's a the rabbit hole. Been you, happening, right? It's a it's a rabbit hole. We don't have time to go down today. But point is, is yes, no. They're obviously no longer a national championship contention, CFP contention. But they're not exactly. You know, we're not talking about a team who's unranked. Uh, you know, we're not talking about you know eight and four. 
We're talking about a team who did end up going, you know, ten and two, and could end up being eleven and two. Right. That's my point. Depending on what happens at a bowl game, could be twelve and two. Right. On the high side, so they are not in the CFP top four, but they are not, you know, wildly behind necessarily. However, the other side of the coin, the other side of the coin, is they could be they could be ten and three after this, headed to the Alamo Bowl. And yeah, exactly. And with the way that this much of the season was occupied by way of thought process, uh, you know, 10 and three headed to the Alamo Bowl, taking on, I don't know, Oklahoma, probably. That'd be kind of fun. I've had two bad experiences at the the Alamo Bowl, so I don't like going there. Uh, Again, for for much of the season when it was spent uh, with grandiose aspirations. Uh, the Alamo Bowl with a coach ah, with a Bob Stoops led Oklahoma is not exactly uh, they were false what, what a lot of people had in mind. But be that as it may, uh, to the game specifically, uh, as you mentioned there, a little bit of from the from the defense in particular for Oregon uh, and the improvements that they made. Yes, they in the grand scheme of things, did Oregon State's rushing attack attain much? No, they didn't. Uh, in gross, no. You know, Twenty one carries for eighty five yards. It's still four yards a carry. That's why I say it's not necessarily a wildly unbelievable defensive performance, uh, particularly considering that I think a couple of the run plays uh, that went for you know minus one by Bradford or Coletto, if you take those out of the equation, it's close to like 19 carries by either true running backs or, or Nolan in particular. Uh, but be that as it may, <laughs> Oregon stuck to its identity offensively. And pounded the rock offensively a ton. On their four possessions in the first half, they opened all of them, which is P and 10 for those of you who get into the inside football vernacular. They opened all four drives with a running play. That's who Oregon is. They ran on, I believe it was 13 of 18 first downs in the first half. That's who Oregon is. They run past like distribution. 70 something yards. Right. They, they pounded the rock in the first half and were able to, particularly on first down and set the agenda that way and got gains and obviously had a lot of success. And then they were able to sustain that throughout the course of the game. And defensively, what happens is when you, when you create a lead by doing that, you then break the other team because Oregon state has to throw the ball in order to do it. And they did successfully at times. Don't get me wrong. The point is, is Oregon State, if, if Oregon State went into the game thinking they were going to throw 40 times and run 20 times and that was going to lead to success, obviously, no. It needed to be the reverse. Why didn't Oregon State do that? I don't know. I don't know. Because when you look at the breakdown, as you mentioned, 12 personnel, because it comes up again this week, and that's why we, we mention it at all. On a couple of initial plays, Oregon State came out their first couple of plays in 12 and they got a couple of gains. You know, BJ Baylor had gains of four and six yards on the first two plays. And then they left it. Then they said, no, you know, that worked so well. Let's stop doing it. (laughs) And then the next three plays, Oregon stopped them. Okay. You come out the next drive. What happens after you're now down, by the way, 14, nothing. Second possession for Oregon state. 12 personnel, first down to the tight end on a bootleg. 12 personnel, only goes for a yard, okay. Interior defensive tackle, blew up the right guard on the play. All right. On a third and nine, they convert. Back to first and 10, 12 personnel. Nice gain. 
Another first down, 12 personnel, pass, incomplete. Second and 10, 12 personnel. Only got three yards, and then a third and seven, incomplete pass. Keep on trucking, and Oregon is now up 17. And it just starts to get away from Oregon State. And point is, is that in the the first half in particular, when the game was still up for grabs, or, you know, we joked on the podcast last week about if I were, you know, if I were Oregon State, I wouldn't even go out there with a receiver. I'd I'd sooner employ the triple (laughs) option. And I wasn't even necessarily being hyperbolic. Well, again, Oregon stuck to its identity and established its identity. Things it didn't do against Utah, in part, somewhat in part because of circumstance where down a distance got away from them. Uh, and then the game got away from them. It really was the complete reversal in that it wasn't only circumstance, though, that was dictating to Oregon State that they get away from 12 personnel. They just chose to do it. And that's the part that, in terms of, yeah, did I pick Oregon State to win the game? Yes, I did, because I thought they were going to run 12 personnel 80-plus percent of the time and actually stick to what got them there and gave them the best chance. And every team against Oregon had shown this is your best opportunity using two and three tight ends. Oregon State didn't do that. They decided not to, at times elected not to. I'll never understand it. That's not from, you know, that, again, that's a subject for another day. But in terms of Oregon's relative success on the ground and containing B.J. Baylor and the running attack for Oregon State, yeah, in gross number, it's 85 yards. And for B.J. Baylor, it's 59 yards. But he had four and a half yards of carry and Oregon State still had four yards of carry. It's not as though they completely and utterly derailed the running game. They just removed it from the equation because of how successful the offense was that they basically said to Oregon State, you can't continue to rely on your run game. We're not going to allow you. And in the passing game, like I say, Nolan had some success. And yeah, some of it was on higher probability throws and harder throws for a defensive track, bootlegs and things like that, and really long rollouts, tight ends and stuff. That's a concern, frankly, going into this week for Oregon. Again, we're talking about bootlegs and stuff to tight ends. Not entirely what Utah does, but they will at times. And they use, obviously, the tight ends more than anybody. That part, to me, is a still an issue. It was an issue, obviously, when they played Utah. It remains an issue. But even off this Oregon State game, for as well as they played on the ground, in some areas and gross, Utah's not going to suddenly line up in 12 personnel all night. Or, excuse me, 11 personnel all night. They're going to be in 12 and 13 most all the game. And even when they're in 11, it's because a tight end is split out at receiver. So they're still going to have the bodies out there to go to. That's where I say, you know, Utah's not going to reinvent itself. They're going to stick to who they are. And that obviously gave Oregon a lot of trouble. That's the part. So you're picking the Utes? I have so far, yeah. I think it'll be a lot more competitive than the first meeting. A lot more competitive. You know, I'm not going to pick a 31-point loss or something. that You know, for Oregon, that's no. Because there were circumstances that came up. You know, again, it was 14 points until three minutes left in the half. And then everything shifts on the long pass down the middle, the broken tackles, the missed tackles. Verone McKinley goes down. Uh, they snapped the ball to get the touchdown on the third touchdown when they could have ran more time at the play clock. Still scored, but because of that, set up a, a short possession. Oregon ends up punting and the punt return. And it goes from 14 to 28 in three minutes. Add to that the circumstantial aspects of down and distance and how they got away from the run game a little bit before, and then it really gets exacerbated when you're down four scores. Those are things that aren't replicable, or certainly you can't predict them to be. 
So I do think it'll be a lot more competitive than it was the first time. But right now, yeah, I'm still picking Utah to win because ultimately they, they still blew Oregon off the line of scrimmage in the first game. And that's the part of it that you can talk about scheme. You can talk about things that have been a, a Achilles heel or bugaboo, whatever term you want to use one way or another, or things that have been great success for Oregon for that matter. Again, running offense, particularly. You can close the gap on 31 points. You can't, I, I can't get entirely through the idea that one team so thoroughly dominated the other on the line of scrimmage on both sides. And it's not like a, a new player is coming into the equation here. The linemen are still the linemen on both sides of the ball. There isn't an injured player who's coming back or something that's going to really change that dynamic. And again, they're not going to necessarily employ something wildly different by way of scheme. That's the part that I still give the edge to Utah on because there's that much more physical a team all game in that game at Salt Lake City. It wasn't just, oh, once you're up 28, they started doing it. No, they did it from the beginning. They did it the entire first half. And then it just, you know, in the second half, forget it. So that's, that's the part that I still give the edge to Utah and why I think Utah still wins the game. Yeah. I mean, that's none of that's not valid, but if you, if Oregon, plays better on offense, then you, you change the entire complexion of the game, obviously. And it's not like they gave up 300 yards rushing. They gave up what, 208 on 4.2 per carry or what have you. Um, so they weren't thoroughly, completely demoralized with 300 yards rushing or something like that. So if you play just a little bit better against the run no, no, and it, you def- are successful def- offensively, about- you change the game. But at two, first off, 208 is still a pretty decent number to begin with. 200 plus rushing, of you're, you're the, the of predictability of after 200 yards rushing allowed, your probability of winning goes down exponentially. The main part of the 208 was there's 50 carries. That was the issue. It was 50 and carries. 50 carries, right. And, and a lot of that was because Oregon couldn't do anything offensively. If you tell me right now that Oregon, that the Oregon, if you tell me right now that Oregon gets their offensive going and Utah rushes the ball 50 times for 208 yards, Oregon's winning that game because 4.2 yards per carry is not going to hold up against another team if they're playing well offensively. It's just going to be 200 yards. It's just, okay, good. They got 200 yards rushing great on four yards per carry. They didn't completely dominate us for four quarters at four, at what, 50 yards a quarter? If I'm scoring, that's not going to matter. So if Oregon's offense plays better, which I think they will, that changes the impact of that 4.2 yards per carry on 50 carries. I, I don't, I don't disagree with that, Aaron. I don't disagree with that in that if, when, when Oregon starts to have more success offensively, Utah's plays and therefore volume of plays, volume of yards goes down. Yes, I, I totally agree and understand that. Utah is not an explosive offense. They weren't an explosive offense when they won by 31 points. The most explosive play was the 49-yarder. That was a season-long pass, and it required multiple broken tackles to do it. They got them. Their longest run on the night was 17 yards. So, no, it wasn't that they their their runs didn't – their 208 yards on the ground didn't come because one run broke for 63 yards. No, that's the point, though. They grind you to bits, and they were 11 of 14 on third down. And, again – no matter what you may be told, it wasn't only first and second down that was the culprit. When you're 11 to 14 on third down, you got a problem on third down. And when the average distance to go <laughs> well, was third course. and medium, well, according to, you know, 
Some people inside the HDC, it was first and second down was the complete and only, you know, issue. And you go, uh, mm, I don't know. The average distance was in the manageable range and Utah just kept on moving the sticks on the ground on third and four to six. And that's a problem. Right. Well, what's the worst thing that can happen to a defense against a team that wants to ground and pound? To continue what's to the see worst the th- sticks moving. Well, to continue to put them on the field. Over and over and over again because your yeah. offense can't do jack. So that's going right. to wear out the defense even more. So my, my point right. is, if Oregon's offense shows up and Utah runs the ball exactly the way they did in that first game, Oregon's going to win that game because that level of rushing, which was good, don't get me wrong, it was good, is not going to hold up if the other team's putting up points and their defense is getting more rest. That's all I'm saying. Rising's going to have to do more. So that's what I'm predicting is going to happen. They're going to do a little bit better against the run. They're going to do a lot better on offense, change the complexity of the game, and they're going to win the game because they're, I think they're the better team from an athletic standpoint. That's, that's just what I think is going to happen. As far as how you see a narrative flip, I agree. It's tough to imagine after what we saw. But remember, in the 2019 championship game, did anyone in the press box believe that Oregon was going to rush for – Verdell had two-something and they rushed for three-something in the Pac-12 title game? Against a team that was allowing 58 yards rushing per game. I think they were number one in the country. I thought Oregon was dead in the water when they got off the bus because there was no way they're going to be able to run the football and Utah was going to win that game. And next thing I knew, they were running the ball all over them. So like things can, narratives can change in, in, at the flip of a coin. And I think that the different setting and having a week to get over that loss and then having a good game against Oregon State is setting up Oregon to play a completely different game on Friday. How much you want to bet? You'll be in Vegas. We can, we can place a bet. <laughs> oh, well, I have never, nor will I ever. Uh, certainly not, and certainly not on a team I'm covering. That's for sure. Uh, and teams are own on that, but you know, that's not where, <laughs> where I'm going with that. But uh, no, I, I again, a lot of the points you make, I don't disagree. But oh, bottom line is, like I guess I, I have a hard time uh, just seeing completely past uh, and ignoring. Uh, or, or or suspecting and projecting that well they got so manhandled in the line of scrimmage the first time, but so much of that was because of time possession, and so much of that was because well if they just if they just got a little bit more by way of offensive success, well then they would have you know leaned on Utah's defense a little more, and they would have worn down a little faster, and their defense would have held up better. So therefore, like there's a lot of therefores there. I just look at it and go, mm-hmm. yeah, but it didn't. That's college football. And one team so completely and utterly dominated the other physically that, and from the beginning, I mean, that that is hard for me to just go, well, game's going to play out differently. So therefore, all that physicality that we saw the first time is just going to be completely. Look, have we seen things like this happen where it has been reversed? You see it in the NFL all the time. But that's the NFL. <laughs> you see it in the, the NFL all the time. The Pac-12 is a circus. You don't see where, are the re- where, are rematches, where are their rematches outside of conference title games? Well, I'm not talking about rematches. I'm talking about where a team looks That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking way, about, I'm talking about we just, we just saw. No, way. I'm talking about what we just saw about the same opponent, the same matchup, the same exact situation. You the don't last see it in college Oregon football played, unless title the last time, The last time Oregon played a rematch in the Pac-12 title game, was against 2014 Arizona. against Arizona when they played they got, them they in lost, like September and then they blew them out. They lost, and they're the only they team to do October. it. October, I think it was October. But regardless, regardless late they, September, they early home. October, they lost. It was at home. a yes. They lost. Yes, and then Scooby Wright. Scooby Wright went bananas. Yes, and and they lost at home, and then they revenged the loss. They're the only team to do it. Okay, in the okay. Pac-12 championship game, 
Everybody else I mean, in rematches, I mean, the regular season rematches held up and they've swept. Right. So out of, uh, it's either six or seven of the, of rematch. But Oregon's one of, but Oregon's one of one, James. Oregon's right. one of one. And Scooby Wright isn't going to be on the field <laughs> and nor is Arizona. Uh, so no. And, and nor is Marcus Mariota. Uh, so right. no. I so can't wait. Is, I cannot wait for next Tuesday's podcast. Um, look. <laughs> I know about the adages about, oh, it's hard to beat a team twice and all that, but in the Pac-12, that just simply hasn't proven true. Uh, and in terms of quick you're rematch like, aspects, you, uh, the, the quick rematch aspect of things. rooting for Oregon now. Well, if you, apparently be, you're completely bought be, in. Again, well, just remember, not only is Aaron predicting, now is, not only is Aaron predicting that <laughs> this is going to be completely reversed and he's now got the duck hat on. He is mm-hmm. going to be the first to come on next Tuesday when, when they win and proclaim that Oregon is rightfully the three-time reigning Pac-12 champion. No, I will not. I will not. Oh, okay. I will, see, I will see not, you can only go so far. I will far. not go there. Go so <laughs> we only get him to. We only get him to go so far. Though. He can't. We, he, he's gone. He's gone down. He's gone down the duck bridge. He's, he's right there with the duck. He's right there driving the car, but he can't. I'm chilling play. with the duck. I'm not. I'm still not going to give him credit for that championship. No, can't quite get bad. get over the threshold of 2020. No. Can't quite get there. But no. alas, no. again, we'll, paper, we'll, we'll paper get championship. Well, yeah. let's talk about these coaching yeah. changes, man. And, and Mario, let's let's talk about that, and then we'll get back to the to the game. Sure. Let's, let's shift. Sure. Let's shift. Why not? What do you? Why th- I'm dying to know what you think about the Lincoln Riley thing coming to USC. I'm dying to know what you think about all these this money being thrown around and. If there's going to be any movement on Mario, well, where where do we begin on on which on which part of all that? that that's 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 a, a very big game. Well, fan, fans want to know first about Mario. People are kind of freaking out a little bit. I don't. I I have always said if Miami offers, he's gone. Since the day Mario became head coach, that's been my belief. Mario has to. I mean, Miami has to first have a vacancy and then offer. I'm not totally sold on the idea that Mario would be their first choice. I mean, they, they might have other people on their list, but do you think there's any danger there whatsoever with a Miami Mario marriage? Well, I I generally don't get into open speculation, particularly when there's people who are still in jobs. Oh, come on, James. It's a podcast. We have to speculate. Yeah. Who has journalistic integrity or ethics and anything like that? <laughs> it's a podcast. Um, but- it's a podcast. You're not being a told journalist right now, James. No, no, let's just throw that out. Um, but, uh, no, I generally, I, like I say, I really don't get into the, the, every which hypothetical and speculation because, you know, especially, um, uh, professional capacity, anything you, uh, lend credence to just then that gets taken and lifted and, and used as evidence of something that may or may not even be there in any way, shape or form. Uh, in any that's, conversation. that's true. So, that happened to me earlier this year already. That's a good so, point. Um, so that's why I, I just don't even entertain a lot of this stuff. Uh, for one, Miami doesn't have an athletic director. Probably smart. Um, so that's probably first and foremost. Uh, and, the, and depending on, on, on who you read and what day, uh, the athletic director search at Miami is either involving uh, Gino Toretta and Alonzo Highsmith or uh, someone who actually <laughs> does have uh, – and that's serious. That's, that's, not, that's not hyperbole. That's, that's legitimate reports. Oh, I know. Um, so – Depending on who you follow and what day, uh, you know they're they're the leaders. Or now all of a sudden, uh, you know, an athletic director who's actually an athletic director who may actually have uh, college athletics, you know, acumen uh, is involved. So that just gives you an idea of the Miami landscape at the moment. 
Um, mm-hmm. Now, in terms of the fact that, oh, yeah, by the way, Manny Diaz is still the coach uh, at the moment. Right. And it's also <laughs> yeah, a couple of days exactly. removed since the end of the season, and they could have you know made moves if they wanted to. And he's got to replace an offensive coordinator if he wants to and other things if he's still going to be around uh, after all. Those things involved as well. First off, to your notion and to your uh, hypothesis uh, that if Miami offered, Mario would leave. Well, I, I think we've kind of seen this play out already, haven't we? I mean, I, I feel like no. I lived this when Miami came calling a few years ago. Miami didn't come calling. Miami, Miami was open. came calling. Miami was open in three years ago. Mario was not on their list. Oh, so that 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 whole exchange that happened when I was covering the Red Box Bowl that didn't happen that 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 didn't that didn't take place uh, that you know I, Manny Diaz was hired quickly. Don't get me wrong, I, I, but the, I I, I whole, never saw any whole, report or believe that whole bit in the background of you know you saying they offered Mario the job. I don't know if there was a firm and solid offer, but I think there was contact. Nah, there might have been. Con- yeah, my understanding was Mario contacted them, and they told him that he was not their choice. Well, regardless, three years and ago, I, and, I, and, I, and I, at the time, I didn't. Why? Why would Mario be their choice? He had been he had been Oregon's head coach for one season. Like, wh- why all of a sudden would he go from fired at, at Florida International to being assistant at Bama to being assistant at Oregon to now the Miami Hurricanes are offering them their job after one nine and four season at Oregon? That that didn't make any sense at all at the time. So I, I don't believe for a second they actually offered but him. But promoting from within out. to hire a defensive coordinator made all the sense? What's that? The alternative that? was promoting from within to retain their defensive coordinator, which they did. And I'm not saying that at the time that Manny was a, was a bad decision. What I'm saying is, is that in the yin and yang and the A or B conversation, hire a coach who's off a, success, a successful initial season and a rebuild and has the acumen as a recruiter and who is an alum and who people actually down there, like a good number of people actually very much, uh, he was not a ho- value. He, Mario Cristobal was not a head coaching candidate anywhere in the country. He became head coach at Oregon because Taggart left and the players said, we like Mario. It's not like right. Mario was one of the top 10 candidates on the nation. And then he took the Oregon job. He got the Oregon job because he was at Oregon. If, if Mario Cristobal had been anywhere else in the country, and not on Taggart's staff. When Taggart left Oregon, Mario Cristobal would have not been a candidate for the Oregon job. He's the Oregon coach because Taggart brought him to Oregon and then Taggart left. Period. Full stop. End of story. So the idea that he was going to be a nationally prominent head coaching candidate after one year at Oregon and an accidental job he kind of fell into because one dude left and that Miami was going to make him their hire makes zero sense on any level. How many times has that kind of thing ever happened? He had a 21 and 40 record as a coach. There was nothing about Mario Cristobal that screamed, I'm going to go to one of the top 10 programs in the history of college football after one year at Oregon. So no, I don't believe that happened or was a thing at all. I do believe now, four years later, after winning a Rose Bowl, after winning, as you're calling it, two straight Pac-12 titles and maybe a third and beating Ohio State and the fact that Miami can't get over the hump and that Mario's a great recruiter and he has Miami connections and ties, I think it makes sense now. But in 2018, I don't think it was a thing at all. And they retained their defensive the people coordinator I talk, the people who didn't exactly I talk to. have a multitude of uh, uh, things on his resume other than being a successful Two? defensive coach. They were, they were but, he, he, but he was there. He, right, right, he was there. He was in-house. 
just like Mario was here and he was in house. Yeah, I, I'm not arguing Mario was the here. They elevated so him. You're, Diaz you're, was you're there. They elevated as, him. That makes two sense. options. And they chose one option. I'm saying okay, Mario was fine, not. But. Mario was. I'm saying all I'm saying is Mario was not. I, I see this a lot where people are like he, Mario turned down Miami in 2018. No, he did not. And no, he wouldn't have. Mar- there's there's no way I believe Mario Cristobal. If if you just erase the last, just just not erasing, but just said tomorrow, Mario Cristobal, you're standing in you're in Hawaii with your family vacationing. You can go to Miami or you can go to Eugene. Where do you want to go? All things are equal. He wouldn't even blink at Eugene. He'd be like, oh, I'm going back to Miami. Of course, he's from Miami. His mom's in Miami. He played at Miami. He won a national championship in Miami. He's coaches and his coach at Miami. He's a Miami born Cuban. But yeah, he wants to stay in Eugene. No, that doesn't make any sense. And there's no way in hell they offered him that job in 2018. And he said, no, I'm staying in Eugene. No way. No way. Well, Aaron's got the answers for you on that one, folks. Uh, again, he's got his theories and hypotheses and answers and assumptions. <laughs> no, theory, so I've, had, I've had sources, to, sources close take, to take him that, told me take that he was the, not take that accordingly. Um, that, uh, you know, it's, it's been a lifelong dream. What can I say? Uh, to, in terms of, again, it's a situation where Manny Diaz still has the job at the moment. So I. Exactly. He still has the job and we don't know there. if Mario would be their top choice now. For either. one, uh, two, I, I, for any of these, uh, uh, openings that have been filled or openings to come or what have you, um, I, I, I stick to basically the legalese, which is there's a $9 million buyout. That's for starters. Uh, there's a decent, though not uh, certainly outlandish, uh, base salary, certainly not compared to some of those numbers that have been thrown out the last 48 hours in, in new coaching hires. And that number increases with performance bonuses that start to become much more in line with uh, some of the higher paid coaches in the country. Uh, resources certainly aren't lacking from uh, a program standpoint and coaching uh, assistant coaches salary pool standpoint or other things uh, infrastructure you name it not sure that those are all things that can be said at Miami at all in fact very few of them can be said at Miami it's not a place where there's been an abundance of resources at all and the, the again the stories whatever it was a week ago 10 days ago of all oh, these alums are coming forth now and they're going to pour in all this additional money at Miami in particular. We're just mentioning it just because for sake of conversation. I looked at that one. Why is that a selling point? That to me should be a bigger flag than a selling point. Where was it before? Why did it take until now? Why is this place that, you know, basically has a very different image of itself than apparently has been reality for some time. Where has this support been before? Why have these resources not been there before? Where are they lacking that these resources are about to, not, they're not going to suddenly close the gap on buildings, infrastructure, what have you, uh, suddenly? Yeah, you can pay anybody whoever you want to pay. If you got the money to do it, more power to you. But that alone doesn't solve all of Miami's problems or any other team's problems for that matter. Any other program, any team in the country we could be talking about, it doesn't matter. You could pay a coach all the money in the world. You could give them all the money to hire their assistants. 
Yeah, but they still have to have the players. And yes, in the age of the portal and one-time transfers and all these things. Yeah, but sooner or later, you're still capped off at 32 guys you can bring in this year. No matter how much churn you may have, you still have to inherit a team. You still have to bring in up to 32 new guys. That's it. I don't care if you assemble the greatest coaching staff in the history of man. Sooner or later, you still have to deal with the talent that you got. And right now, this Oregon team, this Oregon program, with the resources that it has, with the coaching staff that it has, with the resources and infrastructure that it has, is a really talented team built for the next several years. That time has been spent by Mario and his staff to get them to this point. For anyone in a similar or comparable situation to pick up and leave that situation for something viewed as or perceived as better. Yeah, it's going to take a whole lot of money first. And second, probably going to need to have the notion and idea that you're having a better chance from a competitive standpoint. And to and to continue to and pivot slightly to the other aspects of the conversation you were getting at, Aaron, was, oh, what about these other hires? And what about these other moves that have happened the last couple of days? And Lincoln Riley to USC or Brian Kelly to LSU from Notre Dame. Two guys who are in two of the top 10, certainly, and historically, I think two of the top six all-time winningest programs in college football history, leaving to go to two other really successful programs, certainly LSU in the most modern era in particular. So why? Well, obviously money's a pretty big factor there, but the dollar signs have been thrown around. $95 million for Brian Kelly, and Lincoln, it'll take time for and tax returns to eventually come out, but most people expect that to be somewhere in the realm of at least $10 million a year. So that's a start. What's the other part? Well, a factor, not the only factor, but a factor is, why would you leave Notre Dame for LSU? Well, LSU has had two coaches win national championships recently, neither of whom are considered at the highest regard of coaching acumen or strategy. It's just an abundance of talent that is always there. Abundance of talent is not something that Notre Dame can always procure because of all a myriad reasons, because they have to recruit nationally, because of the academic restrictions, because of you name it, things that simply aren't hurdles in the way at LSU. Why would you leave for USC from Oklahoma? Well, again, beyond the money aspect, Plenty of people have pointed out, yeah, that Oklahoma's going to the SEC. Now, it's not happening tomorrow, so I I don't think that that in and of itself is the only reason, because you could say, well, Lincoln could have easily stayed in Oklahoma for another year or two until they did leave if you're so worried about the SEC. But between money and the opportunity and competitive landscape and what have you, that's another factor. And yes, from a recruiting perspective, contrary to what many believe about Oklahoma, the state of Oklahoma is not the most fertile recruiting ground. They have to get a lot of their players out of Texas. And that's fine. It's not a big distance. But USC is, if you wanted to recruit USC only from Southern California players, you can pretty much do that. And then you could cherry pick out the other guys who you want out of Arizona or Vegas or Texas or wherever it is you want to go. Oklahoma basically has to set up camp in Texas. To recruit because there aren't an abundance of four star players who are four and five star players coming out of the state of Oklahoma. It just doesn't happen. So why would those coaches leave for those opportunities? For those reasons. Well, if we're going to try and superimpose that theory and logic on Mario Cristobal, 
You could say, well, the state of Oregon isn't exactly fertile recruiting grounds. Miami-Dade County is, or any other place in that region of the country certainly has more fertile recruiting grounds. Yes, absolutely. But are they better situated to win a championship than where he is? No. Do they have more resources and money than the current situation? Probably not. Probably not. And then if we want to start drilling into state income tax rates and other garbage, stop. Just stop. I mean, if that's really what you think is going to ultimately come down to a coaching decision-making at a massive scale, stop. Stop. Ultimately, it's competition and the ability to win in a big way. In a big way is a big part of it. And, and yes, that was even a big part for Lincoln Riley and Brian Kelly. Competition, the ability to win a national championship. Now, it really stands with the degree of hypocrisy there for Brian Kelly because, well, his team is in the national championship conversation and it's probably going to be number six tonight or number five. And it won't exactly take much for Notre Dame to potentially reach the field of four this year. And he's leaving a team who is the very least is in the conversation, if not potentially in the field. And he doesn't have interest in it. That is why that move is, in many people's view, in my own, is shared a bit more, I wouldn't just say shocking, but a bit more unnerving or not great for the sport. Riley going from one, again, coaches change jobs. That's fine. Whatever, whatever they choose to do. When you have a coach, we're talking about this is this is conference championship week. The conversation of the week should be around those games. Teams who've earned the opportunity to get there. And yes, coaching changes are happening this time of year too. That's obviously part of the conversation. And unfortunately for the playoff selection committee, you also have the management committee meeting and having their playoff conversation about changing the format here these next today and tomorrow and whatnot in Dallas as part of everything else going on. So there will be a lot of conversations happening this week that we're going to detract from and take away from the championship games. However, having two coaches at two of the most storied programs leave for two of the other most storied programs, including one leaving a team who could be in the playoff. Not exactly a great look for the sport. It's not. It's not. But you tell me, what is your assessment of things in the landscape for how things have gone down out there? To be honest with you, man, college football to me, I love football, so I like college football. But college football, the way it's set up, everything that goes along with it just is, it doesn't, none of it makes any sense to me. I, I, it, it bores me to tears even talking about some of this stuff. The only thing I really care, I couldn't care less about Notre Dame. I couldn't care less about LSU. I couldn't care less about Oklahoma. Since, you know, I live in Pac-12 country, I find it fascinating that Riley is going to USC. Um, I care about what that means to the Pac-12 and USC and to what it means to Oregon. It's USC's most prominent hire since bringing John Robinson back from the NFL in terms of hiring a proven coach who had won at the big time level. USC has not done that. And Pete Carroll doesn't count. He came from the NFL. So to be able to go and take a guy who's averaging 11 wins a year at Oklahoma and steal him and bring him to USC, which we all know is still a sleeping giant because of their recruiting prowess and their their notoriety or not notoriety, but their uh, their cachet across the country um, is it's huge for USC. And I think it's 
I think it's got to be a concern for Oregon. I mean, if I'm Oregon, I'm like, uh-oh, USC could be back and back in a big way. Oregon's had most, Oregon has usually experienced its greatest successes when USC and or Washington were down. Oregon, I, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look. I don't think it's been very often that Oregon has won the conference when USC and Washington were powers. If USC gets back to being a power, it, it changes the conference. So that's more interesting to me than anything going on with Notre Dame and the LSU. Like I still think, I mean, you just mentioned Orgeron doesn't have the greatest uh, strategic chops, but he just had the greatest, one of the greatest teams of all time just two years ago. He's getting blown out. To me, that's a bad look for college football. You talked about buyouts, like Mario has a big buyout. Is Miami going to pay that buyout? Well, look at the money people are paying coaches to go away. Like they're throwing money around like crazy just to fire people. It's just incredible. I saw a list the other day of how much money people are making just to leave. Um, but anyway, Lincoln Riley coming, Lincoln Riley coming to USC is interesting. Back to Mario and Miami for me. You mentioned Miami's got issues. To me, that's the only holdup. If Miami can't step to the play with Mario and say, look, here's what we're going to do to get us back to being where we think we should be. Then yeah, if I'm Mario, I'm like, y'all need to get your act together before I'm leaving this situation in Oregon. Where pretty much I have the only, my, the only negative you have in Oregon is that you can't live and compete, not only not just recruiting in Oregon, just recruiting the Northwest. Like you can't live on the talent in your region. So you have to go out and recruit other regions, but Oregon's proven they can do that. Mario's doing that. So that's your only drawback. Then you stay here as opposed to going to Miami. But if Miami steps up, and is willing to completely revamp and change what they're doing, Mario could go to Miami and instantly start recruiting top 10 classes like it's nothing. Like it would be, and it would be easier than recruiting top 10 classes to Oregon. Miami in the last six years has had, even despite all their mediocrity, has had classes ranked 10, 11, 13, and six. I have zero doubt that Mario goes to Miami and all of his classes will be top 10 classes. So he'll have the talent to win. Even with even without building one new facility, he's going to recruit in the top ten. Now you start showing you're going to add more money and do more things. Mario goes there, and Mario has just as good a chance of winning a national title as he does here at Oregon. So then, why would he not take that job? And I'm not talking about any other job in the country. Like some Oregon fans get mad at me for bringing this up, and I just don't even understand it. I'm not saying he's leaving for Penn State. I'm not saying he's going to leave Texas A&M or Tennessee or Clemson or Florida State like Taggart did or Michigan State. I'm saying Miami. And anyone who thinks that Miami's not a draw for him just is not – they're not using their brain. (laughs) Because the guy – I guarantee if you cut him open, he would bleed – he would bleed green and orange. So this is a threat if Miami steps up. But like you said, that's a big if. Is the support really going to be there? Where has it been? I do think that is something that could keep Mario in Oregon for at least a little longer. But ultimately, I see him going to Miami if Miami steps up. It has not been a program and institution that has uh, really had a lot of its ducks in a row, uh, proverbially speaking, for quite some time. These things change, man. Quite some time. Uh, These things change. If we can do a flyover right now, the facilities in the Pac-12 10 years ago, it would look like Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble were playing. And then Oregon went out and built a bunch of facilities, and all of a sudden everyone in the country stepped up and started building facilities. These things can change overnight. So can Miami change overnight? I mean, they could if they want to. 
If they don't want to, then they, they're, they're going to keep They don't even have an AD right now. They don't right. even have but that, an AD. Okay, but again, that's something that's literally going to change overnight. In the last article I read, indicates that they want to hire an AD that actually gets and understands how important football is and wants to set forth a plan to make that a priority. If they do that, then things starts the things start to change. If they don't, then things won't change and they'll just be stuck in, you know, eight win mediocrity. And then Mario stays. So we agree. Fine recruiting (laughs) classes you just mentioned, uh, you know, Manny could hang on or whoever ends up going there could end up having a degree of success just because, as you mentioned, on paper, there's all kinds of talent there. Yep. Something to build around. I, I don't know. I don't cover Miami every day. I really don't care about Miami. Um, <laughs> and frankly, you only should care because I'm not sure there are a the lot coaching. of people in Miami who care about Miami, uh, <laughs> given, given their attendance and, uh, the quote unquote support down there. But that's, you know, that's their problem. Uh, ultimately it's a job that's not even yeah. open at the moment. It's, yeah. Uh, it's a, these are all AD things that were said going about on, things that are going on, but, um, yeah, again, we'll, we'll see. Uh, again, the, it's, it's that time of year. It goes, it's kind of part and parcel to everything, but I, like I say, I, I, I try not to give more credence to, to anything than it's already kind of speculative lunacy out there in the first place, but especially something where, um, there's not even an open job. I, I, I just, I, I don't even know what else to really say or get into. I, I've kind of given it to, to my, in my view, I've already given this way too much more time than, than it even deserves. You're listening to Ducks Confidential. We'll be back after a quick break. Anything else in the uh, coaching carousel you wanted to get into, or uh, uh, we getting more into looking ahead? Well, to do, the, uh, do you think, do you think Riley is going to turn around USC? That USC is about to start rattling off eleven win seasons left and right. I mean, I don't know if they're going to win eleven wins next year. That's for sure. Um, I don't care how many Oklahoma guys follow him from the transfer portal. It just, you know, there's there's a lot of things that still have to change uh, there. In particular, you know, it's not just talent. Talent, you know, that that's for starters for sure. But that's one step. But there's a lot of things that got to change there. Um, there is. There's there's a lot of things that got to change there uh, at USC. And frankly, uh, for as many people are as, like super psyched up about this hire, and it's a very it's an outstanding hire. Don't get me wrong here. Okay. Lincoln Riley is a great offensive mind, and has put up and has had quarterbacks put up some unbelievable numbers at Oklahoma, which is why a lot of the skill position players who he's gotten, including from Southern California, some of the guys he's got lined up right now are commits in Southern California. And, and Vegas and I think Arizona's in there. So, you know, they're, they're West Coast or West Coast based, packed whole footprint guys going and committed. Well, were committed to Oklahoma. <laughs> I don't know if they will be going forward, but were, uh, because of what his offense has done. But, you know, listen to some of the more jilted Oklahoma fans in the last 24, 48 hours. And they've got, in some cases, some very valid criticisms ah they're okay. crying is like it's just like when no you, i'm not talking about you know, that when, they're when, crying when because people, he's laughed and all loyalty and this break, no, no, people, no 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 i'm talking no i'm talking about people break about up and the woman starts going around saying how bad the man was in bed it's like uh, you were with him for five years was now it's just the same thing with fans he's, he's not that good now because he left but go ahead <laughs> 
I don't know how we made <laughs> those kinds of analogies here, but um, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Happy Tuesday, uh, <laughs> but be that as it may, um, it's true. I, I, it's I the same where, mentality. Where, where, I, I, the same mentality. Wasn't exactly the first thing that came to mind for me, but um, okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, even when it, even when they've reached that. the playoff, I no, I can't say that I do. Um, even when they've reached the playoff, uh, they end up not winning. When Oklahoma's made it. You know, I, I, I don't know. I seem, I'm, so? I'm old enough to remember what happened in 2019 when they played LSU. Yes, a all time. Yeah, one LSU of the greatest teams roster. of all time. Yes. They got throttled. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And? And what happened in prior playoff appearances by Oklahoma when they've made it? With Riley? Mm hmm. Okay. But again, we're talking about making the playoffs. Like th- th- we we just talked a minute ago about college football. Talking about winning a league like. where they don't play defense, where there's okay, no that, players okay. on the defensive side of the ball drafted okay. into the NFL, where That's no fine. one is a That's much fine. as a speed bump in his way. That's fine. But again, when we start getting to the point where oh, they made the playoffs but didn't win the playoff game, he isn't any good. Then no one's any good. Then there's two good coaches in the country. And one just didn't. Dabo Sweeney just had a bad year. He should be fired. Too. Like I just can't. I can't get behind the world. What happened in the playoffs? Question he made was, the playoffs. Your question is: Are they going to start reeling off eleven win seasons over and over in and the turn USC around to yes. that level? And I'm saying that they're going to have success. They're not going to play Bama or Clemson in the play in the in the, in the Pac-12. They're not going to play programs like that. So it doesn't matter. They got blown out by by LSU. He's not playing LSU anymore. Or not going to play them in the Pac-12. He's going to play the Pac-12. If Oklahoma right. were in the Pac-12, Oklahoma would would have won probably the Pac-12 most of the last four or five years. Probably, yeah. Okay, so that's my point. So if he's going to replicate what he did, if he's going to replicate what he did, Oklahoma that, at but he USC, have that t- but he doesn't have that talent yet. But well, well, based on I mean, they've had some nice classes. We don't know though if they're true classes or if they're fake classes. Fake class meaning there's a lot of stars by guys' names, but they're not really that good. We've all seen that happen. There's, there's been myriad so, issues there. Again, the offensive line change the offense to, has been but, problematic. There's been all kinds but, of problems but, and issues. Okay, but, but that's wasn't, their problems but, and issues. But wasn't and it's one not of the for, He's not going to be able to solve it in a matter of, of one offseason is, is what I'm getting yeah. at. Now, you start playing it out I mean, over two and three years and what that starts to look like down the road. Do I think that SC is going to be an incredibly competitive team uh, in the long run? Yeah, I mean, why would you pick against that in general? But on top of it, <laughs> who in that division is going to be competing with them? This year, Utah ascended. Yes, they did. You know what? They also have a lot of senior players that they're going to lose. Now, that's a pretty common theme with Utah. But, yeah, they, they lost a pretty good group of seniors. They had last season such as it was. And then they came back with this group and okay. Well, when you start to lose a pretty good chunk of – the starting lineup in the two deep, they're going to have to go down a peg, uh, relatively speaking, in their own right. Arizona State's in the, quite of a quite a difficult situation. Uh, UCLA is senior laden, and they're going to be losing a whole bunch of guys. Arizona's in a rebuild, and Colorado's in a rebuild. So, kind of by default particularly between some of the talent that's being inherited and whatever talent is brought in, 
whoever was taking over at USC was in a advantageous position regardless of just like, their just name like Oregon, or just what like their Oregon's bank check is. So just like Oregon's been then, right? Are we talking now or are we talking three well, years Well, we're talking about advantageous in the division. I mean, Oregon's, Oregon's been in the division with you know some pretty mediocre teams as well. So, I, I mean, I guess I don't understand why this matters. Matters because you're talking about taking over a team that is having a losing season and turning them into an 11 win team. There's a, there's a doubling of wins that has to occur. Well, it's not well, as I'm not, big a number again, as it not, looks like. I it don't may disagree not with be you. that far I don't disagree a, with you. a road to, to try. I don't disagree that it may not happen tomorrow, like next season. They may not win 11, but I, I do think he's going to absolutely elevate everything about that program and that he, they're going to be instantly be an offensive power next year. Like they're going to, they're going to score. They have way too many offensive weapons. When healthy, they have been an offensive power. They were an offensive, uh, uh, they were an offensive power, frankly, in, in the short season in 20. Yeah. But they, they were an offensive were, but, power. But, Drake London was on the field, but they were and their also, quarterbacks weren't getting hurt every other week. I know, but they were, they were also spotty that year. And that, like you said, the offensive line was a mess. And that's why Oregon throttled them in the, or not throttled them. They beat him in the Pac-12 title game. What I'm saying is that he's going to, he's going to do a better job of masking some of those issues. <clears throat> with the talent they have and make them instantly a threat next year, I think to win the conference. And then after that, it's going to be repeated top seven classes, repeated top 10 rankings, repeated uh, getting to the Pac-12 championship game the vast majority of the time while he's there. That's what I'm saying. I think it's going to happen. That's the impact I, of this. I think that they are probably going to be contending for the South division title at minimum on a annual basis. Uh, starting very, very quickly. A lot of people... So we agree. Uh, look, I, pick, I picked them to win the <laughs> South this season, just to show you how wrong I was, um, and how much I believed in the fact that they had talent and uh, and thought that, you know, even Clay Helton couldn't mess it up, but oops. Uh, but I do think that they'll... I think they'll compete for it next year. I think they could probably win the South and as soon as 23... You know, they, I'm not saying they can't win it next year, but I don't. I'm, I need to see a little bit more by way of the roster. I can't start projecting what an 85 man roster looks like in November. I mean, you got to be kidding. Uh, but in general, between again talent aqu- talent acquired and inherited, and talent um, that could be brought over or uh, recruits that are brought over, and all those sorts of things, yeah, they, they on paper they could be quite a talented roster. But again, it's beyond the talent that's an issue. There's other there's other things. It still has to be system fits. You're still going from an air raid to his offense, which may not be a massive shift, but it's still a shift. You still have to establish a run game. But didn't they you still ha- actually didn't have they to have, have an offensive really- line who can run block. <laughs> right. But didn't wasn't one of their problems going to the air raid that didn't necessarily rec- – they hadn't been recruiting for the air raid type offense. And so now going back to it. A- what is recruiting for the air raid? Well, the, the the offensive line situation, they didn't have linemen that were necessarily conducive for that offense. That's what I've seen people complain about. I'm not sure they have offensive linemen now. <laughs> I'm not sure how many line. offensive linemen. Yeah. Is there issue? <laughs> uh, you know, they well, they I, just I mean, haven't had, I, I they dis- haven't had a lot of, haven't had a lot of players that are very good on the offensive line there after they lost Vera Tucker to the NFL. Um, they haven't had a lot of very good offensive linemen and, and, and no matter what the scheme was, uh, it just didn't. Yeah. A, really a, good, a really good, a really good offensive coach though can figure out ways to minimize that issue. Whereas I felt like sometimes, like one thing about the USC, and I, admittedly I haven't watched USC much since that Pac-12 title game, but one of the things I couldn't believe against Oregon when it was clear they couldn't protect 
was that they still kept running the same types of five, seven step drop, well, equivalent, but out of shotgun a lot of the time, plays where you're trying to go intermediate to deep and you cannot protect it. And they kept doing that over and over, expecting it to change, and it, and it didn't change. Riley, I think, is going to be someone who's going to say, okay, we can't do that. We need to do something different to help mitigate that issue, and that would make their offense better. Because at the end of the day, the goal is just to get the ball to guys who can make plays with it. And how you do that um, is going to dictate your success. And if you're trying to do it in a way where your quarterback's dying, then you're just not very smart. You have to change that. I think Riley will fix that right away, thus making them a lot better than what they were pretty much instantly. Here's and something that's crazy gonna, real quick. I think they're going to be better than a five-win team next season. I, I completely agree with that. I don't know if they're going to double their wins next season is all I'm saying. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Next here's, season. Here's, what, here's what's crazy. On Rivals, they're 77th in recruiting, but that's because they only have eight commits. But they have four five-star commits. So they're, they're, they still, they've already got a really good group of four uh, five-star guys. They only have three four-stars. They only have eight total. So I, I think – we're going to see USC just shoot up this chart and get into the top 10 pretty quickly because Riley is going to absolutely start adding a ton of four-star kids to beef up that number, and they'll go from 77th to the top 10 pretty quickly. And they might. But again, I, I don't think it all gets solved in one offseason. That's all I'm saying. No, they have no, a lot no, of issues. I don't, I don't disagree. Um, that, that, all right. you know, and above all, and, and one thing that is a uniform issue, both at SC and even even some Oklahoma teams under Lincoln Riley, not all of them, to be clear, penalties are a bit of a problem. <laughs> Lack yeah, of discipline yeah. at SC, this whole idea that like, oh, they're going to institute a culture of accountability. And you go, have you looked at Oklahoma's penalty stats over the last five years? Because not every year was fantastic. <laughs> there were some... There were some years where Oklahoma was right there with you at the bottom of the country in penalty yards. So it's, uh, you know, just something something folks want to keep an eye on when it comes to, like, all these proclamations that everything is going to just instantly change because a guy who's had a bunch of Heisman, you know, contending quarterbacks in a league with no defense uh, is going to is showing up and is just going to solve it all. It's like there's other issues at play, though. Yeah. There are. But if, but if you get the most talent and you're boat racing people, those penalties don't matter. Ask Chip Kelly. <laughs> Switching gears to uh, the week ahead in the Pac-12 championship game in Oregon and Utah and the rematch and what have you. And we obviously touched on it a little bit. But uh, and going back to and even mentioning in terms of how it may or may not uh, either translate or, or what kind of impact it may even have. Uh, Anthony Brown Jr. obviously coming off a one of depending on which number you want to go by, you could say it was his most accurate performance. It was you could either you could make the argument that it was his best performance uh, of the season, if not his career. Uh, but again, depending on if you want to get which metrics and which things you want to account for and whatnot, obviously it was one of his better performances for sure, uh, and on a short list. What if anything does that? Uh, lead you to believe by way of how he may be able to play in the championship game on Friday. Aaron. Hey, you, you just talked about it um, with the run game and first down. And I wrote a little bit about that the other day. It's like, if you run the ball well, and he was a part of that, it makes Anthony Brown a completely different dude because he's, you can't ask him to carry you. And that's, that was another problem at Utah. Basically he had to carry the team at Utah for them to have a chance because the run game was crap and the offense 
for Utah with scoring. So now your quarterback has to somehow throw for 350 and four touchdowns and win that game. And he's not that guy. But when he's able to run the football well, and he's able to, to bounce off that and be in good third down situations, play action, run himself, then he, he's developed into a pretty sound quarterback. So, and that goes back to why I think they're going to win this week is that I think they're going to run the ball better. And then that's going to make Brown better. And that's also going to help them score, which is going to help them score points. And then that's going to benefit the defense and the defense won't be in as much trouble as they were in that game. But I loved what I saw from Brown and that throw to, to Devin Williams. I mean, that, that was to me is by far his best throw of the season. I mean, maybe you remember one better, but on the run like that, dropped it on a dime. I mean, that was like Montana to rice type stuff from back in the day when Montana used to roll out throw deep to rice. Um, it was beautiful. It was just, I'm glad he went out that way. You know, I, I really have developed a, an affinity for him for a lot of different reasons because, you know, it's easy when, when someone's just uber talented and they go out, they need to just dominate. It's like, okay, they're, they just dominate. Great. Wow. But when someone has to grind to find their way and overcome obstacles and overcome their own deficiencies and try and fit in. And then you see them sort of blossom, um, later in the season. I, I always think that's kind of fun. So I'm, I'm happy for him that he went out like that. And I'd like to see him go out with, a, with a Pac-12 title and, and be that guy that people <clears throat> may have ripped on during the season. But at the end of the day, you know, he goes 11 and 12 and wins the Pac-12 championship. Yeah, that was a, a terrific performance. Uh, obviously, how could you? I mean, there was really not much by way to criticize. Uh, even the incompletions, I think four of the five or even all five of the five, I think it was four of the five, uh, were just overthrows in one-on-one situations where if you're going to miss, you miss long and give your guy an opportunity to make a play. And all right, if it's a little overthrown, well, so be it. Right. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, it was accurate uh, all day. Again, you mentioned he had the one throw. Obviously, the touchdown to Devin was tremendous. Uh, and a just classic scramble drill kind of play. And decisions on the ground, uh, both on when to keep it, when to uh, hand it off, uh, you name it. Uh, Decision-making is – you never put the ball in jeopardy. Never put the ball in jeopardy. I know there was the one fumble that got overturned, and it was like, yeah, but he didn't put the ball in jeopardy. They ruled it a fumble after he was long down. So, that, that no. Um, you never put the ball in jeopardy. Not in the air, not on the ground. There was never a play where Oregon State's defense had a chance at an interception um, or anything like that or a tip or anything like that. Uh, again, he made made smart decisions. He's made smart decisions on the on the body of the season, on the entire body of work, uh, particularly the, la- the second half of the season. He's made largely really good decisions. He's had some games where he's made really just nothing but the right decisions, mm-hmm. not just this past week. I mean, it was more than that. I want to say it was either the – Colorado game or uh, Washington or Washington State or both, quite frankly. So he's had several games where he has made better and better and better decisions each week in the second half of the season, which is what you want to see. You know, the la- last thing anybody wants to say is that quarterback regressed uh, and started making worse decisions late in the season. <laughs> right. No, this is a quarterback who's continued to make better decisions as the season has gone on. And was his decision making why they lost at Utah? No, not his decision making. It wasn't like Utah got three interceptions in that game. And it wasn't like there was a whole bunch of fumbles. That wasn't, th- those weren't the issues at all. It was, they got behind the sticks. And that wasn't all because of quarterback decision making and the zone read or anything else. I think to say a lot of it was circumstantial. And then, and once you get down four scores, forget it. Forget it. And in terms of uh, a completion percentage of things like that at Utah also, hey, there were drops along the way in that game early and late. Uh, and that's, you know, you're going to have them, but they begin to compound. You know, yeah, there's some error throws too. Sure. Sure. But ultimately, in and of it, it wasn't decision making that lost them. 
Uh, no, he had a really nice decision making game as a whole. And like I say, it's, it was, to me, it was kind of just the latest one. Uh, he has had many of those, uh, over the course of this, of the second half of the season in particular. Did really well. And how that kind of, what that may entail in terms of going forward or what that might, um, uh, lead to. I mean, all, all you can hope for if you're an Oregon fan is that that remains true and holds true. And that if the when when turnover margin is always important, but in a matchup where it, you you were expecting a competitive game, take the first result aside for a moment. Going into that game, you were expecting it to be a competitive game. The betting markets were expecting a competitive game. They are still expecting a competitive game. The betting line is basically the same betting line as it was in what I believe thirteen days prior, on the twentieth at, at Salt Lake City. So they're expecting something by way of competitive. Well, you don't want the turnover margin to be the thing that decides that highly competitive situation. And you have a quarterback who's making really sound decisions. But that's it. Cam Rising also is not a guy who beats himself. And I know he just threw an interception this past week. But it was just his third interception of the season. And I know he didn't start the first three games, but he came in in the third game. Yeah, yes, yes. Point is, you've got two quarterbacks here. Different styles, very different styles of quarterbacks, but neither of whom makes a whole lot by way of mistakes, uh, neither of whom beats themselves. So that's a very, um, it's a big factor. It always is a big factor, but it's also a, a factor in the game uh, for Friday where one each fan base is going to say their quarterback is better situated for the situation. Hey, Brown's a true dual threat. His decision-making has been great. He's coming off this kind of offensive performance, and in the second half of the season, he's done this. Utes fans will say, and Cam Rising has only thrown three interceptions. He's got a 17-3 to touchdown-interception ratio, which only three quarterbacks in the country have a better ratio, <laughs> better ratio than that. Three in the entire country. It's absurd. And one of them is McCall at Coastal Carolina. He's not even the Power Five. Um and again, Rising didn't even play in the first couple of games. So in conference play, he's been obviously at that level. Uh, decision-making is excellent there. And yeah, neither of them, another common trait, neither of them lead terribly explosive offenses in the air. You saw the 49-yarder to Keithy 10 days ago. That was the longest pass play for Utah on the season. They don't throw the ball in the air much at all. From a vertical passing game standpoint, it's not how they operate. They operate with three tight ends on the field. <laughs> so they are built to be a grinding team. Well, if anything, Oregon's offense is slightly more explosive in that regard because its running game can be more explosive even than Utah's, uh, comparatively speaking, because it has probably a little bit better top-end speed across the board at the skill positions. Can they manage to get open and utilize that speed in the open field? Big question. If they can, uh, boy, that that really changes the dynamic of things on Friday. And that's not just with Anthony Brown. That's with anybody. Um, that's with Brown or Dye or Cardwell or Devin Williams or Chris Hudson or the freshman receivers. Yeah, if they can get those guys the ball and get them in the open field. Obviously, it didn't happen very much 10 days ago. But if Oregon can do that, it was a much better chance. And that's lastly to uh, do you think that 
Oregon being able to reestablish itself a bit after the loss at Utah, do you think that that basically what, what we saw this past weekend, clearly we've touched on it a bit already. You think that that's going to completely flip the script, that they will be able to both stop the run that much better uh, and produce offensively to where you're, you're already ready to pick them for, uh, for a third straight uh, trophy. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we both agree it's going to be more competitive, right? We start there. If it's more competitive, then obviously Oregon is going to have a chance to win. Um, I, I just think that I think that what happened at Utah was in part the process of a season where you're not a dominant football team, which Oregon wasn't. You'd flirted with some other potential losses. You lost at Stanford and then you went and played at a tough place to play against a physical team who was ready to come out and just take it to you and you didn't respond. But I do think coming back from that, like, you know, what did Verone say? You know, like during the week, Mario called the team together and urged everyone to flush that and, and pick themselves up and move forward. And they did that in a big way against Oregon State, which is a team that, that beat Utah and is a, a good football team. And they, they pretty much dominated them. And so now you get a second crack. You're going to have the revenge factor in your favor. Uh, you're the hunter now and you're going to be at a neutral site in a championship situation. And I just, I just think they're going to rise to the occasion in that situation. And I do think they have more talent. You would agree they're the more talented team. Oh, so yeah. the more talented team on a neutral site, two weeks after getting their butts kicked with a little bit of revenge on their mind, showing well against a team like Oregon State, I think to me points to Oregon winning this football game. Doesn't mean they can't lose it. I could be wrong, but I just, I feel really good about their chances to, to get it done on Friday. I agree that top to bottom, they're the more talented roster. But I think that said a lot of teams who match up with Utah at times. A lot, not all the time. But I think it has said a lot, and it usually doesn't bear out because either Utah's roster gets considerably older uh, than other teams, just on an annual basis. That's that's regularly the case, for one. Two, sometimes it's not just a matter of star ratings and stuff from the recruiting cycles, but it's also player development and things that Utah's obviously excelled at. Uh, and they excelled that long before they were in the Pac-12 even. Uh, and that's just been a, a hallmark of that program. And with that player development, scheme fit and utilizing the personnel that they do get to fit what they do. Yep. Now, what Amazing. they do may not be very appealing to you, but it works for them. And that's, you know, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's very old school, but it works, and it works really well for them. So you know, I agree that Oregon is still the more talented roster, even depleted at certain positions, particularly the receiver position. I still say they're the more talented roster. Having said that, yes, I also agree that it'll be a more competitive game than the first meeting. Because, again, anybody walking in who could have said they were predicting a 31-point game, I mean, you got to be kidding. I mean, that's just that's they're just lying. So, no, I'm not expecting a, a – replicable result in that way i do still have a hard time just getting past though the idea that oregon was beaten so soundly at the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball and i'm not sure how instantly that gets fixed even if you do some things and adjust some things schematically uh or line calls or you do more Zone runs or uh, power runs or what, you know, whichever adjustment you may wish to make uh, in terms of that. 
I'm not sure, or or certain substitution combinations that may not have worked out so hot the first time. If you do less of those, I'm not sure that all of that instantly rectifies everything. So for that reason, I picked Utah to win. My early pick, I think, was like 31-21. I very well could end up getting closer to the spread, which I don't not usually like doing because then it looks like I'm just you know tiptoeing around that, but it's really not. I just think it may end up being that it may just simply hold true. I picked it as, like I say, I picked it as like a 10-point game. I could very easily get down to a touchdown. I could very easily get down to a field goal. I think it's going to be a competitive game. But I still at the moment, unless something changes here the next couple of days uh, from a personnel standpoint or something else, I just have to give the edge to Utah at the moment because we just saw them play 10 days ago and it was 38-7. to And even with certain adjustments, I don't know if I can get all the way there by way of picking the Ducks to win the game at the moment. Like I say, it could change. I, I expect it to be competitive. And if turnovers are there and, you know, there's all kinds of factors that played in that first time again, but it's still a very big gap to close. But we'll see you on Friday. And right. uh, again, we'll be on next week. So one way or another, we'll talk about it and recap it and, and go over wherever Oregon is headed bowl game wise, which with a win, it'll be the Rose Bowl and a loss. It is almost definitely going to be the Alamo Bowl. It would be hard to envision any two other scenarios at this point for both teams, for that matter. The winner the winner is going to the Rose Bowl. The loser, almost definitely the Alamo. There is probably a weird scenario somebody could concoct whereby an Oregon loss either knocks them lower than the Alamo somehow, some way. I don't see it, but somebody could probably draw it up for me. Uh, or a Oregon loss where depending on like total chaos in this championship weekend could lead to them staying in a new year's six game, just not the Rose bowl. I don't think that's the easiest path for them to figure out, even if they move up to nine tonight, but be that as it may. Um, but again, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but again, that's for later. And again, if next Tuesday, the ducks win, uh, then Aaron will proclaim and be waving uh, three different championship banners uh, and holding all three trophies uh, while while we conduct this podcast. So, uh, but nice. again, we appreciate y'all for listening. As always, make sure if you don't already to subscribe to the Duck Confidential Podcast wherever you get your podcast. Make sure to give us a five star review and all those things to help other people find it as well. Likes, reviews, all those fine things. And uh, for James Crepe and he is Aaron Fentress. We will see you next week.